this month on the Voices of Experience podcast. Nothing is green or brown and nothing is clean or dirty. What we know, what we don't know, and what we thought we knew about fossil fuels and their alternatives. This whole discussion about energy transition, I think has really gotten off track. If you're of a certain age, you might remember the name Arjun Murthy, or at least his fame as the super spiked guy. In 2005, Murthy made a bold prediction about the price of oil and his career would never be the same. He's retired from Goldman Sachs now, but he still serves on the board of directors at ConocoPhillips. And lately, he's been blogging, helping make heads and tails of the volatile oil industry and the transition to whatever's next in energy. He's also a graduate of the Daniels College of Business and the Ryman School of Finance with valuable insight into mentorship, work-life balance, and starting a successful career. We talk about it all on the Voices of Experience podcast, an extension of the signature speaker series at the Daniels College of Business. Arjun, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Lauren. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is ours. I want to start by working our way through time, starting at the beginning. Um, you came to DU by way of Cornell, right? That, that is right. Uh, you know, I'll make, try to make a long story short, but my parents came to this country in 1961 to go to, go to Cornell. And they are, so they're Indian immigrants from India, and I was born and raised here. And I was, as all my friends knew, destined to go to Cornell Engineering. And I have to say, I, I loved Cornell but didn't love engineering, so probably not a great combination at 18. <laughs> so I actually had a great time, uh, one of the reasons I needed to take a year off. And for a variety of reasons, I ended up transferring to the University of Denver. And I have to say, it's one of those lucky breaks in my life that you might think not surviving Cornell would have been a not so great thing. I give my parents credit, and I give really DU credit, and I probably made the most of it. But I loved, the, the it ended up being three years in the finance school at Denver. And really, my life is, I'm very fortunate to have made that transfer. And uh, I'm appreciative of all I got at the University of Denver. Cool. Let's talk about something else that might be considered a lucky break, your famous or infamous super spike prediction at Goldman Sachs. Uh, the year is 2005, oil's like $54 a barrel and trending lower. And you warned people about something called a super spike. And that prediction turned a lot of heads, right? And, and got you a bunch of attention. That's right. So my career started when I graduated from Denver in 1992. And for the first decade, oil was in this 15 to $20 range. And we'd been there so long, people treated it as sort of the new normal and a, and a never to be, you know, veered from type range. And so when oil started moving up, um, we'd done a lot of work. I was an equity research analyst. That's my background career wise. And we just noticed on the supply side, our models for robust supply growth were not coming true. We were ending up with no supply growth instead of robust supply growth. And also on the demand side, the expectation was if oil's too much above 20, demand would get hurt. But in fact, oil prices got to 30, $35, and oil demand was actually accelerating. So we did some work on the demand side. It concluded it's actually the economy driving oil, not oil holding uh, the economy back. And Again, to make a long story short, it compelled us to kind of revisit some of our core assumptions. And we made a call that for the next five years, plus or minus, oil would be in a, quote, super spike paradigm, which was meant to connote a better or higher price range to try and rectify what was then a supply-demand imbalance. But we used the word spike to sort of denote this isn't meant to be a permanent and forever rising oil price. It was going to come down at some point in time. Didn't know exactly when, but we thought it would be at least several years into the future. 
Mm-hmm. And this prediction made some waves, right? You know, so my career, I'm old enough to where the internet wasn't a thing at the start of my career. And in fact, even Excel, I installed Lotus 123 on our computers <laughs> at Petrie Parkman, which is almost comical now, but sort of I used an original spreadsheet program. And so the I was not prepared for a worldwide reaction to what was, I worked at Goldman Sachs at the time. I was, I'm, I'm probably a vice president, so mid, mid-career level, if you will. And our clients were some of the top pension fund, hedge fund, mutual fund managers, and that's who you interacted with and nobody else. And so you'd have these very sort of, you know, sophisticated high-end type dialogues, but only with this very narrow group. So when suddenly the New York Times, uh, the internet, uh, random people start pinging you, <laughs> It took me by surprise because they were not the audience for the call. Uh, and the call was about a framework for how to think about the energy sector, not we're specifically forecasting some crazy, or what was then viewed as a crazy high oil price. So and I, I actually don't think I recovered from that experience to really the last couple of years when, when I realized, you know, you got to have to make friends with social media. So I now have this sub stack, I'm on Twitter, and I've learned to make friends with uh, this world that probably folks, Lauren, from your generation take for granted. But for, as an older person, it was quite an adjustment. So <laughs> I read an article from the Wall Street Journal from, I think, like 2005, 2006, where uh, Paul Liebman, a hedge fund manager and a mentor of yours, said uh, he usually tries to stay out of the limelight. It was probably a little discomforting for him. What was that moment like for you personally? <laughs> That's exactly right. So Paul Leibman was my first boss at Petrie Parkman. And actually, I owe a big, so my first big career assist goes to Dr. Ron Rizzuto and the great pr- professors at University of Denver. And then they recommended me to Paul. So he was my first jo- uh, boss at Petrie. And he, re- frankly, he taught me how to write and he taught me how to critically think about markets and stocks and these kind of things. Uh, and then by then he'd retired from Petrie and was, I think, managing his own fund at the time. I, I have to say that uh, what I loved about Goldman was it was for institutional investors, it was for the largest companies, but that's it. I loved more the behind the scenes kind of role. And I think. It's a big adjustment to have a more public facing, whether it's a call, whether it's a job, what have you. I was definitely not geared for it. I for sure at the time was a very private person. I gave very few media interviews or requests. I never thought that that's, it never interested me. I, I cared about, do our top clients, do they find value in what I'm saying? Do the top companies find value? And that was my target audience and that who was, my research was written for, and, and it was what my job was at Goldman. It was not a public-facing job. So it was a big shock to have literally worldwide media attention, including for, an, and apologies for the phrase, but random people, or certainly people who weren't clients at Goldman Sachs. That, that, that was a big shock. And I dealt with it poorly. I just did not, I was not into that kind of attention and tried my best to just keep my head down and focus on our core client base. So when you say you just recovered from it within the last couple of years, what do you mean by that? You know, so I, I, I had a 22-year career, uh, mostly at Goldman, 15 years. I retired as a partner in 2014. I helped co-run the research department. But that was, you know, I guess a very traditional sort of Wall Street-type career. And in the last eight years, you mentioned I'm on the board of ConocoPhillips. I'm a senior advisor as well to a private equity firm here in New York. And I'm also on the advisory board at Columbia University Center on Global Energy Policy, a public policy think tank nonpartisan. And I think all these three jobs are again, behind the scenes kind of jobs. You're on the board of a company, you're an advisory board member. It is absolutely not public facing. Uh, But this whole discussion about energy transition, I think has really gotten off track. 
And I really don't like the way anyone talks about it, whether it's right of center people, whether it's, whether it's left of center people, whether it's environmentalists or whether it's oil executives or the mass population. There's no one who I think has, uh, it, everyone has to be in one extreme bucket or another. And it's motivated me to want to start writing publicly again. And at the same time, I'm, I'm in my low 50s, I, I kind of said, listen, Social media is here to stay, and there's some good from it. You can get a lot, if you curate your Twitter feed or your Substack, you can get a lot of very different perspectives. Then you, so if you don't like everything that the Wall Street Journal or New York Times write, if one has a left-wing bias and the other a right-wing bias, there's plenty of sources on Substack. There's plenty of sources on Twitter. You have to weed out who's legit, who's not. But I, I've learned to embrace and, and appreciate this, this, it's a terrible phrase, but the democratization of information, it's not all good, but with the, good, with, with the bad comes some good. And, and I've, I've really made an effort, and I've really actually enjoyed now, it's hard to believe, publicly engaging through these forums. And I am proud that a lot of my former clients and CEOs are signed up for this, but I've also kind of gotten used to, I'm going to call it the, the retail person out there, the, the, the regular non-crazy portfolio manager CEO types also engaging. And there are a lot of good people out there in the world, and there's some bad people, but there's a lot of good good people, and I've, I've been enjoying kind of learning how to use social media, so. Yeah, Super Spiked is the name of this Substack blog, um, and we're going to link to that in our show notes so people can check it out as well. Um, you mentioned this, this dismay that you have about how the energy transition is being talked about. Can you tell me, just give me a baseline de- definition of what the energy transition is, and then what's wrong with the way that it's being discussed right now? And, and I think this could probably be a, a three-hour podcast <laughs> on its own, so I will try and give you a succinct version of it. And I think in a nutshell, people seem to either be in the camp that all we care about is that there's too much CO2, and if you're in that camp, then the view is we should get rid of fossil fuels quickly, and the best way to do that would be to limit fossil fuel supply for some reason only in the United States and Canada because that happens to be the areas we're in and we might be able to put some pressure on companies. But I think there's this notion that we have fossil fuels only because fossil fuel producers producers bring it out of the ground and somehow force it upon society, which is, I think, the opposite of how it actually goes. When you look at our energy consumption, it is 80% oil, natural gas, and coal to fossil fuels. Uh, and everything in society, everything about this podcast, everything about all aspects of our life, the clothes we're wearing, the medical equipment, clearly the cars you drive, the power in your house, it all ultimately comes because of energy. We're living in a miraculous time where we've had the most robust population growth really since the Industrial Revolution driven by fossil fuels. You've also got people living longer you've also got the least number of people globally in poverty, and it is all because of the energy revolution sparked by fossil fuels. Now, that has come with the negative externality of too much CO2, but I believe people need to get the order right. You need to provide energy for all, and Lauren, we live, you know, you live in Denver, I live on the East Coast. We're part of the lucky one to maybe two billion people who take energy for granted, where we don't have to, occasionally we'll have blackouts, but by and large, we live pretty good lives. There's anywhere from 1 billion to 3 billion people who either completely lack energy uh, or are energy poor. And the question is, how do you give these people an opportunity to gain a middle-class lifestyle? 
you need to deal with the externalities, which we've done throughout history. We used to have lead in gasoline. That was bad. We took it out. We used to have sulfur in these fuels. We've significantly reduced it. That is good. We now have CO2, so we need to decarbonize. But the idea that you're going to decarbonize by yelling at like seven super large oil companies, it's absurd. And it really misunderstands the nature of energy. And so my first comment is always, you have to find and produce energy for all. To think that you're going to shift to just intermittent sources is absurd. People can always like or dislike individual fossil fuel companies. And some of them are good and some of them are bad. And there's certainly things they should do, like eliminate methane flaring and so forth. But the idea that we only have fossil fuel consumption because these guys produce it out the ground is simply preposterous. And, and so I think there's a need for significant energy education. And again, just because it's preposterous doesn't mean we're not trying to decarbonize. But you need policies that actually impact our usage of energy, broadly speaking. How is it that we allow SUVs to continue to exist? If you really want to reduce oil demand, limit people to actually fuel efficient cars. Electric vehicles are part of the solution, but again, for the one to three billion people who are on the energy poor side, they're not driving electric vehicles, that is for sure. Right, so you need, it's, it's really about solving our overall energy needs in a way that directionally gets you to a run. But when you start with CO2, which is where a lot of the climate conversation starts, I don't think you'll ever solve it until you first address people's basic energy needs. So I apologize. I know that's too long of an answer, as succinct <laughs> as I think I can be. So there's a lot more on the Substack. I know there's audio, there's video. Thank you. No, that that's good, and I, and I want to understand. Make sure I understand um, what you're saying. And my question, I guess, is: Is the future green and non-oil dependent? And and your opinion is just that. It's not as easy to get there as, as just swearing off of oil. So there's a lot of things about the language that I would push on back on, uh, not from you, but from the broader conversation, which is this sure. idea of dirty versus clean, green versus brown. Everything is a range of outcomes. Um, to produce solar, uh, if it's being done in China, which has coal-fired power production, if it's being done through forced labor, I'm not so sure what is green about that. And a lot of the mining around the world is done in very challenging conditions, both environmentally and human rights-wise. Nothing is clean, green, or brown. And nothing is, is dirty or, or, or clean either. And I think these types of languages need to change. I think the issue is how do you provide energy for all, and how do you continue to improve its environmental and climate footprint? And it is going to be all sources. 80% uh, of our energy today comes from, again, oil, natural gas, and coal. The idea that that can change in 10 years is, is, is absurd. It is completely absurd, especially when things like nuclear power, which is baseload, meaning it can run 24-7, 365, and actually has no carbon content, is somehow off limits. You're not going to have 24-7, 365 power from solar and wind. It is ridiculous to think you can. Uh, it, it, or the cost of batteries, the cost of storage, uh, the CapEx cost to build all these plants for high-speed transmission lines is so high that you end up ensuring that everyone has to pay a lot more for energy, which no one wants to do, right? We get the 4 and $5 a gallon gasoline and people freak out. Uh, again, so there is a requirement to clean up all that we can on the traditional fossil fuel side. There is a need to clean up our supply chains in solar and wind, nothing is green or brown and nothing is clean or dirty. That is language used to divide people into, into camps. One of the attempts to take this on was the Inflation Reduction Act signed in August by the president. It was 
marketed, I suppose, as a way to focus on sustainability and incentives for renewable energy. But now there are a lot of people saying that it's beneficial to the oil industry as well. And I'm just curious for you to evaluate this bill. Um, How did it turn out? So there's no question we need sensible public policy. Whether this represents that or not, time will tell. And I think there are some things that that I personally agree with in this bill. Uh, One of the critiques I find odd is Again, the language that, and we hear it broadly, that this, quote, helps the oil and gas industry. So how does that help climate? And again, I think it's a false binary. It's, it's false language. It is not the way to approach it. Why wouldn't we want the U.S. and Canadian oil and gas industry, in this case, the U.S. industry, to be helped? Would we rather have production go to places like Russia and Iran? I am an American, so this is an American's perspective. It's my personal views. But if you limit production domestically, It will only go to places that are geopolitically more challenging and, by the way, have worse labor and environmental and climate outcomes to boot. What is the sense in that? So when critics of the Inflation Reduction Act say this is a this is this has some giveaways to oil and gas energy. First of all, it doesn't really. I'm not sure offshore leasing is going to make a huge difference either way. But even if it did, we should be promoting, frankly, maximum U.S. and Canadian oil supply. That is for the betterment of American workers. American families, and frankly, the climate and the environment. You can mandate, if you want, zero methane, or at least eliminate flaring. You can hold companies to tough labor and environmental standards, which you cannot in Siberia. You cannot do it. Go visit oil fields in Siberia and check on the environmental footprint there. These are the choices you have. And so we need the Inflation Reduction Act and other policies, 10X. We need policies that address demand side. How about banning SUVs? Don't ban internal combustion engines, ban SUVs. How about that as a a policy that would actually move the needle? Where's the support for nuclear? 24-7, 365 power that has zero carbon. And you're going to have to figure out nuclear disposal and and those kind of things. But but where is that in these kind of bills? Where is the permitting reform to allow high-speed transmission lines and oil and gas pipelines? We need energy for all, and we're trying to clean it up collectively. What are we doing to displace... Uyghur forced labor supply chains in China and re-domesticate them here. Good luck getting a mining permit in the United States. Where's the reform for that? How does that help or hurt all of our energy, including some of the future technologies? But if the goal was, in part, some notion of compromise and pragmatism, we need that to be scaled up 10x. It should be doing, frankly, a lot more to allow more oil and gas pipelines, especially out of Canada, but also out of the natural gas Appalachia, with the goal of energy security, displace Russian, Iranian, and other Middle East supply, to provide natural gas to Europe, which they badly need, to accelerate permitting reform for the benefit of solar, wind, and natural gas, and crude oil out of this country, to improve the ability to mine our natural resources that we need for solar and wind and the newer technologies, along with oil and gas. There's still a long way to go And unfortunately, as long as people still talk about green and brown, dirty and clean, we're not going to get there. And that is a hope of super spiked and other pragmatists. Let's talk about your career broadly here. Uh, We've spoken in the past uh, and you've talked a lot about the significance of mentorship in your professional and personal life. And you're also a part of the Ryman School of Finance's mentorship program here. Can you tell me a little bit about why mentorship has been so significant and why you wanted to get involved back here at Daniels? You know, it's been core to frankly, all of my success. So whether it was someone like Dr. Rizzuto at the University of Denver, and he was a professor, but I consider him a mentor as well. 
Uh, Paul Leibman, who you already mentioned, my first boss at Petrie Parkman. There was a, a gentleman, Chris Carapi, at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. And then lastly, Steve Strong and at Goldman Sachs. These were my sort of four core mentors that taught me different things that really helped guide me, or especially early in my career, both in terms of just how do you do core analysis right? What are the mistakes they made? But how do you interact with people? There's so many different benefits to having had a mentor. And I you know, ultimately became a partner at Goldman Sachs, and it would not have happened without all those mentors that I mentioned who taught me different things along the way. And so at some point, there is a goal to sort of give, give back in different ways. And I, I was very fortunate that my first mentor-mentee relationship at the University of Denver worked out with uh, Carolyn Luca. And she's just been a remarkable person to get to know. Um, you you want to help. You, you want to help people who want to be helped and, and, frankly, who you think can be great. And when I say great, I don't necessarily mean highest paying job uh, or they have to work at a place like Goldman Sachs or anything like that. But she has a passion to be successful in what interests her. Uh, and there might be some mentoring things along the way that maybe I can help with. And so I have a lot of respect for students like Carolyn and hope that there are others out there. Well, you've given us a perfect segue to a new segment that we're doing here on season two of the Voices of Experience podcast, which is some questions from students. And we've got one that we're going to put on the show here and then a couple more where we will put your answers online on our show notes. And uh, here is that first question for you. Arjun, this is Vishesh. I'm so glad for this opportunity to speak with you. I'm currently a student at University of Denver and I have had a background in equity research. What I want to understand is as a student in finance and invest in banking, there's a lot of opportunities that I can pick from here. I am at a stage in my career where everything that I'm looking at looks very attractive and I want to get into. What are the some factors that I should consider before I make these decisions? Because this is a pivotal moment. And I think that the decisions I take in the next one year will determine the next like two, three decades of my life. So according to your experience, what are some of the things, especially as an international student, I should keep in mind before I choose my next steps? I want to adjust one part of the question, which I think I think I didn't feel this way when I was graduating, maybe because I had that little bit of a bumpy path. But I think do people do think they're making these 20 or 30 year decisions. They're not at all. Now, it doesn't mean you can't set yourself in a bad way or short way that could compound. But the idea that whatever uh, this uh, student decides in the short term is going to impact him for a couple of decades, I will actually disagree with that, you know, and say, don't don't think about it that dramatically, quite frankly. There's especially in this modern age, there's so much ability to adjust. I, I think the most important thing is, can you are you going to a place where you do have a good mentor to get back to that basic philosophy. And so I started working at Petrie Parkman in Denver for most people wouldn't have heard of. I think I'm lucky I started there and not at JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs or one of the quote good investment banks in that era because I actually got much better training and mentoring than I likely would have at those places as a first or second year out of school, especially in that environment and the way that you know they'd kind of machine through people and in those days. And so same thing with the sector. So I covered oil and gas in the 90s when it was out of favor. Petrie Parkman was an institutional quality firm, even though it was a small firm. You know, and so can you go to a place that will develop skills, that will develop mentoring, critical thinking, and so forth? It does not have to be the name brand firm. 
And oftentimes people have these choices of a kind of a recognizable name. And it doesn't mean the boutique's always right. There can be plenty of bad boutiques where it's some crazy founder and it's all about that person. And so I, I don't think there are any absolute answers. And I actually think for any student, the student mentioned he was more global in orientation, but whether it's an American or someone more global, it is a global world and it is more in interconnected. And there are a lot more startups. The key is what are the skill sets? What are, it's not compensation. You're not trying to target max compensation. You're trying to target skill set networking gain. Uh, I, I did it by accident. Uh, I'm now 53 years old and I'm extremely lucky that I've never actually had to look for a job. So Dr. Rizzuto recommended me to Petrie. JP Morgan asked to interview me from, from, from Petrie. Uh, Goldman Sachs came calling from JP Morgan. And then when I announced my retirement at Goldman Sachs, both ConocoPhillips and the private equity firm came calling the day Bloomberg ran some crazy headline about super spike guy hanging it up for a day. And so I, I've never actually, it, it is all because I had the sense, I think, to go to where I might get mentored, networking, skill set gain. I never, to my best of my knowledge, did it for highest compensation or that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, I, I think students coming out of Denver have a real opportunity, and I, I wish everyone the best. So, Great advice. Thanks, Arjun. And a reminder that his answers to all of those questions are on our show notes online. As we bring things home here, Arjun, as a voice of experience on the Voices of Experience podcast here, is there anything else you'd like to pass on to our listeners? You know, so I, I was a partner at Goldman for eight years, and I've been an equity research analyst for 22. And it is the kind of job that gives you kind of an above average income and so forth. But I have never been confused that what I always loved most was actually spending time with my children and my wife and family. And my wife had noticed that I, I became co-director of research my last three years at Goldman. At, you know, they expect you at some point to help manage an integrated investment bank. And I hated the management job. I loved being an analyst. She said, for the first time, even though you've always kind of worked too much and you're never really around and all that, and when you're around, you're not really here, you actually don't look happy in the core work. You should rethink it. And so I actually went to them and said, I want to stop working. I've never been confused about sort of work-life balance. I want to be clear on that point. When I worked at Goldman, it was 24-7, not quite 365, but probably 350 of the 365. And the balance there was if you put in a full career at Goldman, you then get to enjoy life later. That's the work-life balance, but you still have to pick it. You still have to pick that after 22 years on Wall Street, I was going to pick life. And I got to catch middle school and high school for my three children, I will tell you, there is no amount of compensation that makes up for that amount of time that I got with them. And frankly, and not to be too personal, but even your relationship with your spouse is significantly better when you're not a Goldman partner working you know, 24 seven and only caring about the client calls and so forth. And so from a family perspective, I am so much better off, but I'm also better off from a career standpoint because I have different experiences now. I've been on the board of a company. I'm involved with public policy. Uh, at, at a university that it was not my background. So I have uh, perspectives on the environmental movement, the climate movement, that's neither right nor left wing, uh, but that also informs my, I'll just call it pragmatic approach to solving these things because I don't work um, as an equity research analyst anymore. And so I picked life, if you will, but it's oddly actually, I think, helped my career as well. You know, and so I would tell people, you can't get locked into, I'm only about 
either making money or frankly the opposite, that somehow I want to make a lot of money, but also have this great work-life balance. There are some choices to be made and they can evolve. I picked work, quite frankly, for 22 years. And then I picked life for the last eight. And now as my kids go to college, we're kind of doing something in between. So, Arjun Murthy, a longtime Wall Street energy analyst and a newcomer to the blogging sphere. Arjun, thank you so much for sharing your perspective. Lauren, these were great questions. It was a real pleasure to be here. And thank you for uh, all you do for the University of Denver. I, again, I remain very proud and appreciative of my time there. And thank you for this podcast. Take a trip back in time with us, if you will, to 2005, when Arjun initially made his super spiked prediction. You can read the, may I say, pretty entertaining 17-year-old news coverage from the Wall Street Journal when you visit our show notes. You'll find them at du.edu slash voe dash podcast, along with links to Arjun's blog and answers to more questions from students. The VOE podcast is an extension of Voices of Experience, the signature speaker series at the Daniels College of Business, sponsored by U.S. Bank. Patrick Orr is our sound engineer. Alumnus Joshua Metzer wrote our theme. I'm Lauren Fultenberg. Like us, rate us, review us, and we'll see you next time on the Voices of Experience podcast. <laughs>